Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, the second part of a series marking the early decades of broadcasting in Hong Kong to coincide with the 90th birthday of RTHK this year. It was known as the call sign GOW when it was founded in 1928 and then changed to the call sign ZBW in the following year. In 1934, there was also the call sign ZEK, which was Chinese language broadcasting. But they weren't separate channels. They would share the same airwaves at different times of the day. In the early years, ZBW was a mixed fare of BBC transmissions of news and concerts from London, plus local announcers and personalities including Aileen Woods, who would be with ZBW, later to become Radio Hong Kong, until the 1950s and 60s in different roles. Well, we left England in 1911, coronation year of uh, King George V and Queen Mary. Our last appearance in England was at the Crystal Palace when my two sisters and I were models, strange as it may seem. It was the first time that um, they ever had a, a proper stage setting and we had Lucille gowns and wore Sandow corsets and um, really beautiful clothes. And we were there for several weeks at the Crystal Palace in 1911. And then in November, I think it was, or October, we went to the United States. ZBW and ZEK would become Radio Hong Kong in 1948. This week, we look at the early years of Aileen Woods, then move into the war years here, where Miss Woods was also interned in Stanley Civilian Camp with her twin sister. In December 1941, ZBW and ZEK would go off the air as the Japanese occupying forces took over the media. Meanwhile, the world's most durable DJ, Uncle Ray Cadero, wasn't a DJ yet. He was a young refugee in Macau. But first, I join Hugh Chiverton, head of the English Programme Service at RTHK and presenter of the weekday morning back chat programme as we take a look at a photograph in the corridor. It's a photograph and the OBE that was given in 1958 to a woman called Aileen Woods who had been a broadcaster in uh, RTHK for a long time. And a resident, and if you start looking at her history, it's very, very interesting. Um, I've been a resident of Hong Kong since 1919. She was one of two sisters, twins, identical twins, so identical that their mother apparently couldn't even tell them apart, born in Australia, uh, who were singers. They were a singing pair. And they travelled to Europe, and then at uh, the outbreak of the First World War, they travelled out to Southeast Asia and started doing tours and things in Southeast Asia. Don Doris and I, you see, in the old days, before talkies, uh, we were very well known for because we used to do all the singing for the silent pictures. For instance, uh, the flag lieutenant. We sang, you know, um, Land of Hope and Glory and uh, Smiling Through and all those pictures. Yes, we did a lot. And Diane, of course, uh, in Seventh Heaven. We sang that 16 times a day. <laughs> 16 times a day. There's a picture of them online in a book about rugby because... Her, she and her sister were kind of rugby fans, apparently, and were sort of associated with the rugby team and followed the, this is would be the um, New Zealand rugby team. And there's a photograph of them. That's as early as 1905. 1905 <laughs> groupies. She was a rugby groupie in 1905, her and her sister. She never married. Um, she stuck with her sister the entire time. She said 
to which was one artist she wanted to ever thought of getting married she said no I couldn't possibly get married because my sister would have to come on the honeymoon uh, with me <laughs> um, so she lived in Hong Kong uh, since since 1919 um, there's also a, a, you can see a, an advert this is an advert from 1919 uh, Hong Kong Hotel special attractions the popular entertainers Aileen and Doris Woods will appear after an absence of two years and present the latest song hits an early newspaper account of Aileen Woods describes her on a trip to America. The China Mail, September the 16th, 1922. New dances. Miss Aileen Woods studies in America. Interesting dancing innovations are promised for Hong Kong as a result of Miss Aileen Woods' visit to America, where she is now studying the latest movements in order to teach them here. Miss Woods leaves San Francisco by the Shinyo Maru on September the 21st and arrives here on October the 24th. Writing home by the last mail, Miss Wood says, I am at present taking two lessons a day and night classes twice a week. My teacher is one of the very best and I work every minute of the lessons. She insists that I write down all the exercises and steps in order to commit them to memory and she is very particular about the graceful arm movements. I have learnt some very pretty dances, notably a Spanish dance with a fan, a mazurka, highland fling, hornpipe, Irish jig and scarf dance. At all the principal halls and hotels, I have closely studied the ballroom dancing. As a rule, it is simple, very smooth and graceful, with plenty of three-step movements. Shimmying is not allowed. Miss Woods adds a tribute to her teacher, who, she says, possesses a wonderful gift of imparting her knowledge. Miss Woods looks forward to resuming her classes here in October. She taught ballroom dancing and singing right up to the war and then she was interned with her sister uh, who worked for HSBC, interned in Stanley, lived uh, still with her sister apparently on a tiny little bed that was a used ping pong table. By all accounts it was very generous both of them, there's lots of stories about them sharing food and, and, and treats and, and things like this. Barbara Anslow came to Hong Kong in 1927 at the age of eight. She's 99 now and lives in Essex in southeast England. On the phone, she told me what she recalled of ZBW. She also knew Aileen Woods and her twin sister in Stanley internment camp during the Japanese occupation. Well, we didn't listen to it very often. It was looked upon as rather boring because of an awful lot of gramophone records and mainly we listened to it for the BBC News. And uh, in particular, on September the 3rd, 1939, it was a Sunday, and uh, we'd been to the pictures in the evening, and when we came home, we turned into the news, and, and that was when we heard that we were at war with, with Germany. That was how that came to us. Do you remember what you saw at the pictures? Um, bachelor Mother with Ginger Rogers. <laughs> well, of course, I think the most outstanding broadcast, which I can remember, came over to us from Radio Hong Kong, from the BBC, were undoubtedly... The, the broadcast of the premiere when he announced that war had started on September the 3rd, and again that night when the King's message came to us. I think that was the most touching and wonderful, wonderful message. And his first thought seemed to be for the children of the world, because he knew that we faced such a great ordeal. Little did we know that we faced so many, many years of it. That was in 1939. In this place, Hour, perhaps the most faithful in our history, I send 
to every household of my people, both at home and overseas, this message. Then the next broadcast, which I can always remember, because we always sat and listened in the greatest of silence. No one was allowed to speak in 1940 when his Christmas broadcast came again. Again, it was so marvellously touching. He, he, he was such a wonderful king. So as we entered the 1940s, what would the chart toppers have been then? Well, there was one song by a Chinese lady called Yao Li. She was very big. She did a few early movies in mainland China, also, which became very popular in Hong Kong. Also, anywhere there was a Chinese community. Her biggest song, which was actually big, not just with Chinese, but also with expats, was a song called Rose, Rose, I Love You. She recorded it, and it was just a big hit. And you've got to remember, this is about 1940, before the Japanese attack on Hong Kong. She was a big deal in her era, and the, the records apparently sold very well in Hong Kong, Shanghai, Singapore, everywhere, of course, where there was a Chinese community. Once again, trouble threatens in the east, and the civilian population of Hong Kong is leaving the affected area. Families wonder where and when they will meet again. Britain sends Empress of Japan to take the women and children from the danger zone. The guns which arm the British liner Empress of Asia show they mean business in this China port. All loaded and ready to sail, the ships will soon glide out of the harbour. Mines and submarine nets guard the channel entrance to the British Crown Colony. They're headed for the Philippine Islands, and after a 36-hour voyage, they arrive in typhoon-whipped Manila Harbour. Great Britain and the United States remove their women and children to the sanctuary of American territory. As they come ashore, 1,800 strong, they're taken over by soldiers of the United States Army. Most of the evacuees are to find a haven of rest at Fort McKinley. American radio journalist and photographer Harrison Foreman was on a special assignment for the National Broadcasting Company of New York. On the 4th of August, 1941, he made the following radio broadcast on ZBW, which was relayed to the United States. Hello, NBC. This is Harrison Foreman speaking from Hong Kong, China, on the opposite side of the globe from most of you in America. It's exactly 8.17 in the morning here, Monday morning. In some respects, civilian Hong Kong reminds one of an ostrich with its head buried in the sand, repeating to itself, it can't happen here. The new tension in the Pacific, which has arisen this past week or so, doesn't seem to worry folks very much. Just another one of those crises, they say. It'll blow over, as the others have done before. So business still carries on as usual. There are no visible signs of panic or even increased apprehension. There's no rush for steamer passage on the part of either Europeans or Japanese here. Though I did see a few Japanese the other day buying suitcases and trunks. As a matter of fact, husbands are still agitating to get the government to allow them to bring their wives and kids back to Hong Kong, crisis or no crisis. You may remember, perhaps, that during a similar crisis a little over a year ago, the government evacuated women and children from Hong Kong, most of whom were sent all the way to Australia, about as far from Hong Kong as San Francisco. 
The powers that be in Hong Kong, however, are no ostriches. There's clear evidence on every hand that they mean business, that they mean to defend this place from attack. And it'll not be merely a token defence either. For Hong Kong fairly bristles with big guns, anti-aircraft, powerful searchlights, barbed wire and camouflage. And plenty of troops too. The harbour is well mined and a constant air and sea patrol is maintained for many miles out to sea. Though there is no naval or air force here to speak of, the Japanese can never be too sure that a British air force or even a fleet would not suddenly make their appearance. Unquestionably, an attack on Britain out here would result in an immediate British military alliance with China, with cooperative actions. Meanwhile, for the immediate protection of Hong Kong's million-and-a-half civilians from an air blitz, the hills upon which the city is built have been literally honeycombed with an elaborate system of tunnels drilled deep into the solid rock, with entrances opening right off the streets. Drilled under the direction of a firm of American mining engineers, these tunnel shelters vary in capacity from 1,000 to one accommodating over 30,000 people. I now return you to NBC. Tell me about December 1941. I don't remember hearing anything on the radio about that at all. It was just that the air raid sirens went, so we found that the Japanese were coming over to us, bombing us. That was just the beginning, early in the morning. Captive Christmas, which was both a radio documentary and a book in the mid-1970s, remarks that John Sterricker, who apparently was a tobacco inspector, was keeping Radio ZBW on the air. On December 19th, 1941, he introduces the governor, Sir Mark Young, who tells the listeners that the defenders have now retired within their island fortress and bids them hold fast. ZBW was off the air for the rest of the hostilities. Oliver Chow, Programme Director for Hong Kong Youth Space, has written a book about the history of music in Hong Kong from the 1930s to the 1950s, including about what happened after ZBW went off the air. During the Japanese occupation period from December 41 to August 45, all the radios had to be registered. In other words, you can't have a radio set at home that was not registered. And you have to register with the administration and they would give you a pass if you passed. And then the the pass was numbered. Uh, Like the one I have here is number 386 license that entitle you to play the radio at home. And what could you hear? Well, because the Japanese, one of the first things that they did was to uh, occupy the radio surface in Old Mercury House. The old Mercury House, the radio service was inactive in the first few days. So according to some documents, the Japanese actually had their own trucks broadcasting on the trucks around town, broadcasting their messages, propaganda and all that. And then I remember after they settled down, they controlled the radio. Interestingly, the program wasn't just Japanese. It was quite a variety of programs, including Cantonese operas, sometimes Indian music, because don't forget, the Japanese came as liberator. They claimed themselves to be liberating Hong Kong from the English colonists. So in early 1942, shortly after they occupied Hong Kong, they changed the radio signal from ZBW to JPHA. Literally, it means Hong Kong Broadcast Station. And the daily broadcast time was from noon to 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and then from 6 to 11 in the evening. They weren't just playing Japanese stuff. It was a variety of things, and they still had a lot of airtime from the local performers, like Cantonese operas, and they also play a lot of Cantonese opera records, the vinyl records, 78 records at that time. So that went on for 
basically the entire period until they were defeated in August uh, 1945. So with the occupying military, there also came broadcasters? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's part of it. In fact, as I said, that was one of the first things that they did, was to take over the broadcast service, the entire apparatus, in order to make sure only the official, they control the newspapers, the press, the entire media, including the radio service in the old Mercury House. Former Deputy Director of Broadcasting for RTHK, Taikin Man, has also been investigating the radio station's history and describes the types of programmes available during the occupation. A couple of Japanese language programs, but at that time it's very interesting, yeah, because Japanese think that you know radio is a very effective medium. So at that time, they even set up some broadcasting tower for broadcasting for those people who don't have radio receivers. They set up some loudspeakers in central Samsoipo, some of the major residential area, so everyone can listen to the broadcast by. The JPHA. Yeah. So they would have Japanese language programs, but they also had programs in, in for, for locals. There were local yeah. performers, weren't they, they? They have a lots of uh, local performers. They have English program. They have Cantonese program, and even they have some program target for the Indian. Because you know, at that time, some of the policemen are from the Indian or Pakistan. So so they even have some program for the Indian and Pakistan community. Yeah. Quite a wide range of program when we look at the program chart during the war time. Ray Cadero, or Uncle Ray, was a young refugee in Macau during the war. As a Portuguese enclave, Macau was neutral. I asked him what radio he could listen to there. Oh yeah, that was the Radio Villa Verde, owned by Pedro Lobo. You know, he was like he was like the king in Macau. He was so well known. He's rich. He owned the Radio Villa Verde. I became friendly with. Roger Lobo, who is the eldest son. So tell me about Radio Villa Verde. It's actually a small little radio station. Send out uh, music m- mainly in Cantonese and, and Portuguese and English. A little bit here, a little bit there. You know, nothing fantastic or amazing. But but that that was the only station. So so <laughs> it's it's pretty popular right throughout the war. And we, we had nothing uh, else to do because there's no other entertainment. So we had to turn to Radio Villa Verde. <laughs> that was the day our flag went down in Hong Kong and we were in War Memorial Hospital, surrounded by Canadian soldiers and all kinds of soldiers having to lay down their arms, which, of course, broke all our hearts and the first time I've ever seen men cry. In fact, I think we were all crying <laughs> on that day up at the War Memorial Hospital in 1941. 1942, we went into Stanley Camp early in January, January the 22nd, into Stanley Camp in 1942. On Tuesday, April the 14th, 1942, an internee, Eric McNider, writes in his diary that the Postmaster General and ZBW staff have come in from town, which was about ten weeks after everyone else into Stanley internment camp. Then, on Saturday, 27th of June, 1942, he writes that there's a concert put on by ZBW radio presenters, including Tim Fortescue. And it was in 1943 they discovered that the um, people had brought in this radio, you know. And for that, eight, at least eight people were executed. Hong Kong historian Jason Wordy tells me about Stanley internment camp, where radio was strictly forbidden. Then we get into the stories of how radio itself 
could get into prisoner of war camps and civilian internee camps because it was, of course, prohibited to have a radio set, but some did manage to get in. And the one which got into Stanley Camp came in by a very unusual means. There was a man called Dougie Waterton, D.W. Waterton, who was buried out in the cemetery at Stanley, who was involved in bringing a radio receiver into camp. And how he did this, I had this in, in detail from the lady whose radio set it was, and her name was Phyllis King, and she must have died about 15 years or so ago or more. She was in the 90s when I interviewed her in Chichester in the UK. And Phyllis was a family friend of Dougie Waterton and her, his wife and son, and the wife and son had been evacuated to Australia in mid-1940. So he was here on his own, and he was a radio engineer with ZBW. And Phyllis was a nurse at Queen Mary Hospital, and the nurses there came out to Stanley a couple of months after everyone else. And a truck was sent out to round them up and collect them, and a working party accompanied it, and Dougie watered and went out with it. And, of course, he knew Phyllis King from pre-war. They played tennis together and were family friends and so on. And as she told the story, she said to him, well, what can we bring in? What do you need? She, he said, well, bring everything. Well, camp beds, yes, bring them in. Clothes, as much as you've got books, bring the lot. Gramophones, certainly all the records. What about the wireless? Yeah, bring that in too. So they bundled it all up together, drove back from Queen Mary to Stanley. They were just ushered in through the camp and they weren't checked with the truck going in. And when they were unloading, he said to her, oh, I'll have the radio, Phyllis. Oh, you have it then, there you go. And that was the radio set which they used for getting information. And that was one which was subsequently uncovered and the one which then led to those individuals losing their lives, including Waterton. And how did they lose their lives? They were subject to a form of, form of kangaroo court and trial and subsequently taken down to the beach and variously beheaded and shot. And there's a very famous photograph which appears in a lot of books. The Imperial War Museum have a copy of it and it's incorporated as well in the stained glass window at St Stephen's College. And it's a calendar which was scratched on the wall of the cell in which they were, and it says executed date stops. So crossing off the dates, and then you get to the date where there isn't any more, and that's when they were taken down to the beach and killed. A wireless in those days, because a transistor is only invented in 1947, so what would a wireless, I mean, would it have been quite a heavy... Uh, well, the thing with this is the equipment itself was quite bulky because they needed valves. And the thing with the valves is they're quite large, and if you look at an old radio set or you take the back off it, you've got these things like light bulbs in there. Well, not only are they quite large, but they're also very breakable. So the challenge of managing to get them in, firstly in a usable state, and secondly at all, given the size, was a significant challenge. And this was a case right across prisoner of war camps in the Far East. And the stories of the ingenuity of getting these things in were scrounging on work parties and managing to hide them in water bottles and Dixie tins and various other things like this. It's, it's all part of the, the Far Eastern war story and a very, very interesting one. And people in a number of camps who had managed to get in ad hoc radio sets and pull them together and somehow get information through the war, many of these were decorated post-war, partly because of the bravery, but also the sheer ingenuity of it. And the other thing with this is... We forget this today, but the 1920s and 1930s was a time of great technological advance. So a lot of little boys grew up with crystal radio sets. So there was a skill set base there of people knowing how to use these things. Also with the raw signals in particular, part of the training was making things out of nothing. So create so the military, the royal signals. Yeah. Yes. So, so creating a, 
a Heath Robinson radio set from a couple of valves and an old hairpin and a bit of wire and and something else made from a tomato tin that they managed to scrounge. This this is the the way these sets were pulled together. So there was an existing skill set there for it, yeah. So ZBW goes off the air, yes, on December the 25th, 1941. So if they are able to both smuggle in and maintain uh, a radio set in a prisoner of war camp in Hong Kong, what would they have been listening to? Well, the thing with these is that the frequencies depending on the strength of the valves they'd they'd been able to get. It was not unknown to pick up San Francisco. They could pick up Australia. They could also pick up, and the signals would be very weak, so you'd be hearing little bits of this. Uh, All India India Radio in New Delhi had a multi-language program which ran out of New Delhi, and that was partly information, disinformation. The man who was in charge of that was was fascinating. He was a man called Alec Adams, who was Siam Consular Service and then latterly went back to the formal diplomatic. But um, he was a Siamese speaker, and what they were doing with, with the Thai language service was getting information in in an ordinary broadcast, but with a, a sentence inserted here and there. And that was done right across the Far East, a number of the stay-behind agents in Malaya got their information by running a radio set in the middle of the jungle and picking up a, a word in a, or a sentence in a, in a radio broadcast or a, a song that might be played twice in one hour or something like that it would go out in clear, on clear as it's called, so it's, it's hidden in plain sight, but if you knew what you're looking at, then there it was. And those services could be picked up in Hong Kong and they're also repeated in China. And then you've got the... China National Radio Administration, and they were broadcasting out of Chongqing with repeaters throughout the unoccupied sections of the country. And the thing with Hong Kong, we must bear in mind, is that the unoccupied sections of the country were only 80 or 100 miles away, so it's within radio range. Hong Kong historian Jason Wordy there. When the war did end... Uh, the first day that it ended, in uh, on August the 30th, 1945, a radio was brought into the camp, and uh, we all heard it. And I, all I remember was crying when we heard, when we heard Big Ben. Historians G.B. Endicott and Alan Birch, in their book Hong Kong Eclipse, relate how on Tuesday, August the 28th, 1945, pre-war Chief Secretary Franklin Gimson broadcasts over the old ZBW radio station. As the chief representative of the British government, now resident in Hong Kong, I have already established an office in the city of Victoria with the concurrence of the Japanese and have in preparation the essential steps towards resuming the British administration on the arrival, which I trust will not be much longer deferred, of the British forces to take the surrender of the colony. So that evening, I heard ZBW, and there was um, an American journalist called George Murad, and he made a broadcast. And we were a bit indignant, because among the things he said was that you can see an internee a mile away, and went on to say how awful we all looked. And we were very indignant about that, because we didn't know we looked awful. And then that night, that must have been the first day that... Um, Well, of course, that was when the radio restarted. That night, we were still listening to the radio after George Moore, and then Tim Fortescue, who was one of the secretaries to the governor before the war, he was on ZBW, and he said, good night to you all, and that was a wonderful feeling to think that we were back in the land of the living again, you know.
My thanks to Barbara Anslow, Hugh Chiverton, Taikin Mann, Oliver Chow, Ray Cadero, David Bellis and the contributors to the Hong Kong history website, grulo.com, Jason Wordy and Colin Aitchison. Next week, radio in Hong Kong goes commercial with the advent of commercial cable station Rediffusion. We'll be looking at two iconic presenters, Liam Orr, a creative raconteur who was able to tell his own novels on air without a script. He would just do it, and then he would personify different characters in his own voice, different pitches, different tempo, different rhythms and all that. He could do it as many as eight in one story. And the young Ray Cadero, who, after four years at a bank, realised he wasn't cut out for a financial career, so changed direction into radio. I knew nothing about radio, so he offered me seven hundred dollars. But what, what am I going to do? You know, I never thought of being an announcer or DJ. You know, so he said, "Well, you better start as a scriptwriter." Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.